in this book, rather dramatically titled Extreme Righteousness, Seeing Ourselves in the Pharisees, Tim Hoverstall describes this this zealous religious group that Jesus so often encountered and, and interacted with like this. He says, he says, the Pharisees led a righteous lifestyle in five areas. Firstly, the prayer life of the Pharisee was exemplary. They prayed publicly, regularly, ritually and respectfully. They not only prayed, but they fasted as they prayed. Second, they live consecrated, separate lives. The very name Pharisee, according to the most common derivation, he says, means separated one. They did not sin, and they actively pursued holiness. Third, they valued fellowship. The Roman, hist- uh, sorry, Jewish historian from the time, Josephus, records that Pharisees are affectionate to each other and cultivate harmonious relations with the community. They organise themselves into small groups for the purpose of mutual edification and accountability. They ate at each other's tables and studied the scriptures. Fourthly, they were good givers. The Pharisees left no conceivable source of income outside their determination to give God his due. And fifthly, they were active evangelists. Jesus said they would travel over land and sea for a single convert. So five distinctive areas of righteousness. Couldn't they be a description of us? If you're here as a guest or a visitor or brought along by a friend or maybe just looking in on Christian things, doesn't that description I've just given there resonate in so many ways with what you think the Christian faith is all about? Moral people, people who pray, who live differently, who value other believing friends, who give charitably and and so are keen to tell others their message. It makes me feel nervous. His description here, which he primarily gathers from the pages of Scripture, resound with what many think the Christian faith is all about. Now, as we were saying to the children, those things in and of themselves are not bad things. They are good things. And more or less, they're part and parcel of what's expected as we follow him. But they're all things that become warped in our hearts and by our sin. And so the plan over the next five weeks is simply to do this. It's to put our hearts under the microscope. To together carefully and prayerfully examine this this pharisaical tendency that so many of us have and then to bring the gospel to bear again upon our hearts. And so today we're going to kick things off in Matthew 7, the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount, the, the greatest, the most famous sermon perhaps that Jesus ever preached. And these are the words he wants to leave ringing in our ears. The story of two houses. But I guess on initial reading it seems a little strange because the Pharisees don't seem to be there. In fact, if you read through the Sermon on the Mount, you won't find the word Pharisee. And yet, right at the heart of Jesus' sermon, I take it, 
is this idea of righteousness. He says, in contrast to others, God's people are to be trusting him. They are not to be self-righteous. Jesus starts off his sermon so deliberately by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn in this world, who are meek, who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Very unimpressive, very countercultural, very what we would not expect from Jesus. He's talking about true righteousness and false righteousness. And so he starts to make the point. He, he redefines these six commands that the zealous religious folk could and were keeping and ticking boxes. And he raises the bar to show them that they can't and they weren't. They're not really righteous, they look the part. And then he highlights the outward show as the sermon develops, he says, of these hypocrites. They're just doing righteous acts, but they're not authentic. 6 verse 1, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. So don't announce your financial giving with a great drum roll and a fanfare. Do it in secret. Don't pray so that everybody else can hear you and see you and be impressed by your eloquence. Rather, go on your own into your room and talk to your Father in heaven and say to him, forgive us our sins. And don't fast and tell everybody about it. It's just between you and God. So I take it right through the sermon, you've got these different kinds of righteousness, these alternatives. It's a, it's a self-righteousness that Jesus says has received its reward in full already. It looks clean and great on the outside. Or it's a true righteousness that is the way of God, that is poor in spirit, that humbly and penitently asks for God's forgiveness, throws ourselves upon Christ. And he says, don't be those who are externally impressive and intimidating but be those who follow after God quietly. Trust him. Trust his righteousness. And these hypocrites, as Jesus refers to them again and again, well, as Matthew's pages turn, they are given a name. We see their faces. You can look at it later in chapters 15 and 22 and 23. The hypocrites, Jesus explicitly says, that they're the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. But why does that matter for us this morning? Well, because when you reach the end of the sermon and he talks about two houses, two options, then what are they? Is it simply obey Jesus, work hard, Put in the effort, build on him, and you'll be all right. So the flip side being house on sand, disobedient, bad people. That's often how it's read. But it seems to me if we've read the entire Sermon on the Mount, then the house on the sand is actually those who are self-righteous. The ones who think they're okay because of what they do. The house on the sand, that's the hypocrites. 
the house on the rock are those who build on Christ, who are poor in spirit, who mourn over sin, who have a true righteousness. The two houses aren't religion and irreligion, or a good life and a bad life. No, no, it's build on God's grace, on what he's done, or build on what you do. So let's get into it. It's a well-known story. We've heard it before. We've probably sung it before. But do we actually get it? Notice firstly with me that they are lives that look the same. Daphne and Doreen are both lovely, kind, patient women. They have been helping in their respective churches' Sunday school groups for years, and they both love it. They would both be on most weeks. They would both prepare really hard. They had well-thought-out crafts. They would teach well. There were good age-appropriate activities and illustrations. Often it said you would find them up late the night before as they were finalising their plans, prepping for the glitter and glue extravaganza the next day. The kids in church loved them and learnt lots, that they looked the same. Daphne and Doreen looked the same. But as time went on, it became very clear that they were very different. They looked alike on the outside, but inside they were quite different. And you see, that's the terrifying truth that Jesus points to in the final little story in the Sermon on the Mount. The two men both wanted to build a house. The two houses they built both looked the same. The two houses both underwent the same conditions. But finally, they were seen to be very different. Jesus lovingly warns us that what you build your life upon is utterly vital. It decides whether you will survive or not. What you build upon is vital. There's a famous story of an architect, Frank Lloyd Wright, who was given the challenge of building the Imperial Hotel in Tokyo. I don't know if you've heard of it, but he seems to be the exception that proves the rule, which are always dangerous with illustrations. Um, If you're an earthquake buff, you will know that Tokyo is one of the most earthquake-prone cities in the world. And yet Wright's perhaps counterintuitive work showed that to deal with the shaking land, the solid foundation was actually built on a layer of soft mud. It floated. It meant it was a shock-absorbing thing. It was a solid support for the building. So soon after the hotel was completed, there was the worst earthquake in 52 years. And it worked. It remained standing. That was the exception. Jesus' parable perhaps was cultural. Perhaps we need in Japan to contextualise how he would tell this. Because the story here is quite different. To build on mud, on sand would leave you flattened and destroyed. The picture he paints is a very everyday one. It's normal. It's a country where flash flooding would happen. It wasn't uncommon. There would be vast amounts of heavy rainfall over a short period of time, and so on hard, compact, dry land, it would flood. The water wouldn't be able to seep into the ground. Water that, instead of bringing life, brings destruction. And if you don't have the right foundations, so it ends in disaster. The two houses looked identical. But it turns out they were very different. The two lives were very different. 
Secondly, a life built on Jesus will last. Verse 24, Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house, yet it did not fall because it had its foundation on the rock. Notice with me, unless Jesus is who he says he is, this is utter blasphemy. He's not just a nice religious teacher who says, here are my thoughts on life. To take it, see what you think, hopefully it's helpful for you. No, no, he's saying this is the way to live, the only way to live. He's, he's remarkably intolerant, isn't he? There's an irony because many people love the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. That They love the ethics that he outlines here. It's almost universally admired. But then there's a selective deafness for the end. Because this bit is edited off. Jesus doesn't just say, take it or leave it. He says, you must take it. You must listen. It is the most important decision you will make in all of your life. Maybe that's you at the moment. You're thinking, who is this guy? I'm not quite sure what to do with Jesus. I can't quite pigeonhole him. I'm not quite sure what to do with his words. He is something of an an anomaly, an enigma to me. Friends, if that's you, his words aren't just the words of a great moral teacher, although he was that. His words are the words of God. He doesn't say, listen to me and build your life on God's words. He says, listen to me and build your life on my words. It's striking. We would do well to be reminded what C.S. Lewis, the famous author and lecturer in Oxford, many of you will know, famously said about Jesus. He said this, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, they say, but I don't accept his claim to be God. But Lewis says that is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man who said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg or else he will be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He's not left that open to us. And he did not intend to. Jesus says, build your life on my words and they will have eternal consequences. And yet, both houses, both lives, are buffeted and beaten. Both are rained upon and rocked. The language of storms seems, I think, to point to the temporal trials of life initially. Stuff that we all go through. A life built on Christ won't inoculate us from difficulties. Maybe even the opposite. The storms are living in a broken world. The the hassles and the hardships, the things that keep us awake at night and worry us. 
the frustrations of last week, the fears that we have of the week to come, and the stuff that breaks our hearts, the stuff that's simply part and parcel of living now. Maybe bodies and minds that slow down, that decay, maybe illness. People who are mean to us and hurt us or mean to those we care about and hurt them. Maybe the, the news that shakes our trust in God, is he, is he really in control? Is he really good? So the storms are, are difficulties now and yet they point ahead to the final judgment then that we will all go through. And you see, the problem is if our life and our value and our worth is built on Jesus' words, and if our identity comes from an internal righteousness that comes from him, then when the winds and the rains pelt down and the storms come, and life is hard and our faith is is stretched, then by his grace, we keep going. Because he holds on to us. Because we've built on him. Our foundation is in Christ. He is steadfast and trustworthy. Our righteousness, identity, value, worth, hope comes from him and what he's done for us rather than what we do. And whatever life is like, ultimately it'll be okay because he's with us. He gives us enough grace because a life built on him looks like that. Many in this building I know can testify to that truth that it is he who has got them through the hard times, through the difficulties. And when final judgment comes, which the Bible says it will, and for all of us, the future is not uncertain, then we're joined to him. And the one who has gone through death will take us through death because of his righteousness. And that was what happened to Daphne, our first Sunday school teacher. Finally, it was thought better if she, that she might serve better somewhere else. And so she came off the Sunday school rota. And of course she missed it, and of course she was sad. It goes without saying, but, but her relationship had sprung from the Lord Jesus. A life built on his words and on his grace. She had built on rock. She was soft-hearted. She often found herself at the cross, in tears again over her sin, but thankful again for his patience and kindness. And when this role was taken away from her and removed, you saw that her life was not built upon it. She had built on Christ. That was Daphne. Doreen was quite different. So thirdly, a self-righteous life is fragile and will be wrecked. The same thing happened to Doreen in her church. And it was messy. Rather than happily handing the baton on to somebody else, it became quite clear that actually, quite subtly, she was serving not Jesus, but she was serving herself. She had been building on sand and there were many tears and there was much anger because she was so tied up in her role that when that was removed from her, then she couldn't cope. 
It turned out that was where she found her life and value and purpose and identity. And so it turned out that her life was very fragile because it was tied up in a role. Her her righteousness came from what she did rather than from Christ. And so as it often is, when that was taken away, then it became obvious The two men both wanted to build a house. The two houses both looked the same. And the two houses both underwent the same conditions. But finally, one did not last. Verse 26, But everyone who hears these words of mine and does not put them into practice like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rains came down, the streams rose, and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell with a great crash. Do you see, it? Do you see to, to hear the words of Jesus is not enough. As he gives this sermon on the mount, if you read it closely, you see there's an inner crowd of disciples listening in, but then a stack of others from afar as well. So at the start of the sermon, 5 verse 1, now when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside, And sat down, his disciples came to him and he began to teach them. But then by the end of the sermon, verse 28 and 29, when Jesus had finished saying, of chapter 7, sorry, when Jesus had finished saying these things, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. There are crowds at the end. It's as if people have sort of edged forward to listen in. They've sat through the sermon. They've sat through sermons. And they've taken notes. And they've listened. But that's not enough. Will they build their life on Christ? And it is so easy to build on externals. Don't you find that? Seeking to be noticed to impress others through giving, through praying, through singing, through serving, whatever it may be for us. But that kind of a life is so brittle. It's fragile. It's like a delicate china cup. So breakable. If you find your, your value and worth and joy in playing the violin on a Thursday, but on Friday you break your arm, then it's gone. And we define ourselves by externals, by what we do, by impressing others. And so we have fragile, anxious lives. It's one of the things we're going to see over the next few weeks, that if you're defined by what you do, then to be honest, what others do matters. Because almost subconsciously, we're always comparing ourselves with others. We've got this pecking order. We've got a ladder. Where are they? Where am I? We're we're insecure and anxious and fragile. Why were my efforts not thanked when theirs were? Why did everyone rave about their Bible study when it's obvious that mine was better? I wish I was as good at them, at baking. I can't believe they were asked to serve again when it's clear that I'm more gifted than they are. 
But when it's all about externals, life is fragile. And we live like hypocrites and Pharisees. Very practically, it's one of the reasons I take it we don't pass a plate around on a Sunday morning. If you'd like to give, that would be great. That there's a form at the back, there's a box, do it in private. I remember when I was a teenager, being in a church where plates were passed around, and I was always very keen to subtly glance over and see who the big givers were. And to maybe give it a bit of a rattle when it came past me, to give the impression that I was giving more. We can kid ourselves, but to, to hear these words are not enough. To sit in church week by week, to listen to sermons, to give money, to read your Bible, to come to First Tuesdays, to be on a, a rotor or four, is not enough. It's the wrong thing. We need to build our lives upon Christ, upon being poor in spirit, often finding ourselves at the cross, often in tears over sin, but often thankful for his grace. And it matters. It matters because finally, when the final judgment comes, if we've built on sand, it won't last. The winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. It's interesting, if you just glance back a few verses as well, you see very similar things. It's astounding in verse 19, he can talk of false prophets people who speak on behalf of God that do not bear good fruit and so are cut down and thrown to the fire. Or again, 21 to 23, there are people who have productive, prophetic, miraculous ministries. But verse 23, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Who are these people? I take it they are people who can talk the talk and walk the walk, but they've built on sand. They've built their lives on what they do rather than him. Now, I need to come clean. Two reasons why we're looking at this, why I'm undertaking this kind of a series. Firstly is because whatever church I'm in, I meet people who confess to struggling as a Pharisee with a sort of moralism and a legalism. This ladder that we place ourselves on as we compare to others, this external righteousness. But secondly, I know my heart too. And however often I speak on the Pharisee and the tax collector in Luke 18 or the older brother in Luke 15, wherever it is, I'm still the Pharisee. However often I come back, too easily I'm like Doreen. My heart veers like that, veers towards legalism. It was Martin Luther that said the external religion is the that sorry that external religion is the default mode of a human heart. That's what our default mode is. It's like a computer that, opera, that operates automatically into default mode unless you deliberately tell it to do something else. So Luther says, even after you become a Christian your heart will go back to operating on other principles, deliberately, unless you put them back to the gospel. 
even after you become a Christian, your heart will go back to operating on other principles unless you deliberately, repeatedly set it to gospel mode. Perhaps it'd be good over this week in home groups, if you're in a home group, to have a think through, why does my heart do that? There's something in our wiring in, in Adam that we do that. Perhaps it's pride. It means that we don't think we're as bad as we are. Perhaps it offers a sense of control where we think, well, I've contributed in some sense, so I'm not truly indebted to God, and therefore, therefore there's a limit to what he can ask of me. Whatever it is, though, as Christians, we must be aware of it and repent of it. Because building on sand is dangerous. And if you're here as someone who wouldn't say you were a Christian or you're not quite sure, it might well be that what we've talked about this morning is something quite new for you. Because up until now, you thought being a Christian was about doing those things. Keeping your nose clean. Racking up enough reward points for God so that he will let you into heaven finally. Being, being righteous. Being good. And yet I hope you've grasped that it's not about that at all. These, these Pharisees, these hypocrites that Jesus talks of, well, it becomes clear that they were far from God. True righteousness isn't about what you do on the outside, but what he does on the inside.